and welcome to Designer Psychology, the podcast exploring the space between design and psychology. I'm Paul Davis, the design psychologist. In this episode, I'm going to raise a controversial point and ask, is there such a thing as placebo design? Could the process of design just be a big show? And could the effects of co-design be an illusion? And do designers even embrace this, unconsciously, in their choice of clothing and the design of their studio spaces? Did you know that cyclists perform athletically better when they are told they have taken a caffeine enhancement over when they actually do take a caffeine enhancement? Also, people who thought they were drinking vodka all night perform significantly worse on tests of memory even though they were actually only drinking plain tonic water. And amazingly, in a study of angina patients, those who had sham chest surgery, that is, opening up the chest, cutting near the arteries, but not actually doing anything that would create a medical effect, the patients reported the exact same beneficial effects as those who had the real operation. Placebo effects make great stories, because we can't quite believe it probably even thinking how stupid people are for falling for them. However, it is likely you've been given a medical placebo at some time in your life, and it may even have worked. While we tend to think of placebos being used in just a health context, the effect itself can be much broader. Tyler Cowan has suggested in his excellent blog, Marginal Revolution, that education could actually be explained as a type of placebo that education doesn't work by actually teaching you anything, but rather it gives you the impression that you've had a good education, which gives you the confidence to go on and be successful in life. Well, that kind of got me thinking. If other areas of life can be influenced by the placebo effect, could there be such a thing as placebo design? To review if design could possibly have a placebo-type effect lurking around somewhere, Let's break down more on how they work in the healthcare sector so we can see if this translates into design. Now, hundreds, if not thousands of studies have been carried out on placebos and they reliably show that the effect is stronger the more expensive the pill, the more invasive the procedure, the more the doctor actually looks like a doctor and even the colour of the pill has an effect. My question is then, Could these characteristics of cost, invasiveness, stereotypes and look apply into the field of design? Let's first take a look at cost. High-priced pills or expensive medical interventions are always more effective as a placebo than cheap or free medicines. The general principle seems to be, if you're paying this much for something, It must be good, right? Looking at the design industry, it's not hard to draw parallels between the large agencies pulling in big hourly fees, smattering clients with account managers galore and copious presentations, and contrast this to the smaller agency or freelancer who can't offer big boardrooms or lobster lunches, but may have an equal amount of design talent. In my experience, this theatre of design offered by the bigger agencies makes the client feel loved. But does it actually create an objectively better design? 
or just the feeling of better design. In psychology, cognitive dissonance is the term used when referring to an internal psychological contradiction people have when faced with opposing attitudes and behaviours. For example, smoking kills you, and I smoke two packs a day. Well, that's a classic example of cognitive dissonance. And the result is often that the person will try and reduce the distance between their attitude towards smoking and their contradictory behaviour by saying things like, well, they relax me, and they stop me putting on weight. What's interesting is people who experience cognitive dissonance often reinterpret their feelings to reduce their internal angst. A classic study asked people to engage in a meaningless and painfully dull task. One group were paid a modest fee, but another group did it for free. When asked afterwards about the task they'd just undertaken, the group who got paid were all too happy to exclaim their boredom. But the group who did it for free actually felt the task was okay, and even agreed that they would do it again. This shows that when an investment is made into something bad, well, in the case of the experiment above, their cost was the participant's time, cognitive dissonance appears. I mean, the participants were aware that they'd just spent two hours of their life performing a dull task for absolutely no reward. So to lessen that dissonance, they apply a post-hoc rationalisation to convince themselves that the task couldn't have been that bad, otherwise why did they do it? Whereas the paid control group could easily explain that the only reason they took part was for the money, the dissonance group needed to find a reason for why they put up with such a boring task. Let's spin this back around and look at the design industry. Now here the cost isn't time, but money. But when the cost of design is high, clients could start to experience dissonance. They could start to think, well, we're paying £2,000 a day for this. The design must be great. Now, designers have the ability to market themselves in whatever manner they like. After all, this is where their skills lie. Creating a website that is just as beautiful as the big agencies, with just as many scrolling parallax effects, is easy to do. And wording the site so that it actually sounds bigger than you are, it's kind of simple. I know lots of freelancers who promote themselves as bigger than they actually are, but with a lower price tag attached. And their thinking is that if they offer the same level of design, but for a lower price, it's kind of a no-brainer for clients, right? But when you think in terms of cognitive dissonance, you start to see the mistake they're making. Now, if a client says, well, here are several design companies who look like they offer similar services, but one is much cheaper than the others. Well, in that sort of situation, it doesn't always lead to the response of, well, I'll go with the cheaper company then. And they don't do that because people are often suspicious of what's missing. One reason low-cost airlines such as EasyJet and Ryanair are successful is that they communicate to people what is being compromised in order to account for their low prices. People understand that they are relinquishing the frills of onboard meals, free nuts and legroom for a cheaper deal. Now, if Ryanair said they offered all the same luxury of British Airways, but at a far cheaper rate, well, they'll start to wonder where the costs are being cut and worry that they hire pilots who've only just scraped through their flight exams. Overtly letting people know where the savings are being made 
or at least creating the perception of letting people know, is enough to reduce the dissonance. If freelance designers communicated the reason for being more competitive on price is that they work from home and don't hire project managers, then potential clients are less likely to assume that it's because the design is substandard. So high-cost design could create a placebo effect in the minds of clients, only if you can create the theatre. Now, could this be why you see the larger agencies having outlandish studios with slides, mini motorbikes, space hoppers, drum kits, basketball courts and tree houses? All of those are real, by the way, and you can check out the outlandish photos of those in the show notes. Let's now consider invasiveness. In a medical context, a placebo that is more invasive or requires effort shows more beneficial effects. Sham surgery generates better effects than a hard-to-swallow capsule, but a hard-to-swallow capsule shows more positive effects than an easy-to-swallow pill. But another key finding is that if the patient is engaged in the process somehow, for example, rubbing in the medicine themselves or self-administering their injection, that medicine has more effect. The actual medicine they're receiving is the same as if a nurse or healthcare professional was doing it, but the nature of being involved increases the efficacy, which is a type of placebo. Have you heard of the IKEA effect? It's a term coined by researchers Dan Ariely, Mike Norton and Daniel Mohan to describe how the more work we put into something, the more we take ownership of it, and also the more we tend to value it. They named it after the big blue and yellow stores because when people make their own furniture, we have more pride and even value it higher than if we bought it pre-built. So they devised a cunning experiment. They asked participants to create their own origami sculptures and then estimate a cost on that final creation. Each paper bird or frog was then bid on by people who had absolutely nothing to do with making them. Now what they found was the average price put on the sculptures by the makers was around 23 cents, whereas the average price by the unattached passerby was just 5 cents. Taking this idea into the world of design, you could suggest that the process of co-design and client design sprints might be explained in terms of this sort of placebo. Now, the UK Design Council describe co-design as a term short for collaborative design that means a community-centred methodology that designers use to develop a partnership with a product or services end-users in order to make their solution more effective. Now, the more you engage the client or end-users in the process with focus groups, brainstorming, and participatory design processes, the more likely the same group would judge the outcome favourably. This effect would be fine if the group involved in the participation are also the only people needing to actually use the product or service. But more often than not, this is not the case, so the IKEA effect could indeed be skewing the perceived value of design. What about the look of a designer? Now, stereotypes generally get a bad press. I mean, the word itself is almost always used with negative connotation, normally hand-in-hand with discrimination. However, stereotypes do have a strong effect in placebos. 
Medical research shows that a placebo is more effective when it's administered from a very stereotypical looking doctor. You know the thing, white lab coat, stethoscope swinging around their neck. But is there such a thing as a stereotypical looking designer? And will this change the efficacy of a design in the eyes of the client? If you're involved in design, do you think about what you wear? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. And maybe you don't think you do, but you unconsciously are using dress cues to your advantage. When chatting with a few friends about their choice of apparel, they did admit to me that they don't like to dress like their clients. And their thinking was that, well, the person hiring them doesn't want somebody to walk in who looks just like them. I mean, they're hiring you for a set of skills they don't possess, and they respond very well to this being visually reinforced by somebody who is dressed more creative than them. I mean, think back to school and conjure up a picture in your mind of your art teacher. And I would suspect they differed in their style to the science teachers. We do like our artists to look and act like Andy Warhol and Vivian Westwood, not like Donald Trump or Marissa Mayer. Looking back at the old school of design greats, you can certainly see a similarity of style. Go online and search for Wally Olins, Michael Wolfe and Dieter Rams. I challenge you to spot the difference between them. The idea of a designer look is even well known enough to have parodies of skinny jean-wearing hipsters scooting around Shoreditch or New York on fixies with tiny little handlebars. These designer fashion traits signal, I'm a designer. But rather than just being a form of pretentiousness or pack mentality, the placebo effect does actually kick in. This convergence of style may serve a practical purpose. What wine do you prefer, red or white? Now, most of us will have a preference, even if we're not up to sommelier standards. Really tell the difference between them. Well, of course you can, you may scoff. But a study cast doubt on this very fact. In 2001, Frederick Brochet at the University of Bordeaux conducted a fiendish experiment. He gathered 54 wine experts to give their opinion on two glasses of wine. One red and one white. Through the tasting, the experts described the red wine with language such as deep, woody and rich. And the white wine elicited exclamations of delicate, fresh and crisp. The only problem was that both were identical white wines, one having been tinted with food colouring. Back in the medical world, and it's been repeatedly shown that the colour of a placebo pill has a large impact in different situations. For general pain, white pills are better, possibly through their association with aspirin. Red or orange pills promote stimulation, and blue and green pills make for more effective tranquilizers. So the perception of colour can have a huge impact on our actual experience. So do the colours you select for designs have the same effect and, by doing so, are you actually facilitating a placebo effect? After all, there's a reason most environmental company brands are green or blue and energy drinks are heavy on the reds. In a 2006 study, researchers found that up to 90% of snap judgments made about products can be based on colour alone.
seems that there is translatable evidence that the effects of placebos can be translated into the world of design. There's one question we haven't answered. Do placebos work for everyone? Now, whilst the effects of a placebo are strong, the striking feature is that they are highly variable across the population. Robert Trivers suggests that roughly one-third of people show a very strong effect, one-third show moderate effects, and one-third will be completely immune to placebos. Perhaps not so weirdly is that the effectiveness of a placebo is roughly correlated with a person's ease of being hypnotised, leading to the idea that placebos are linked to a person's suggestibility. However, suggestibility isn't the same as gullibility. After all, people who are susceptible to the placebo effect in health achieve the same end result and get less side effects than people who need actually active medicine. Where they do suffer, however, is when branded remedies are seen as more effective than generic medicines, and so brands like Nurofen can charge up to nine times more than generic ibuprofen. In his article for Designer Psychology, Justin Small wrote, What the Nurofen example seems to confirm is that we consumers want and expect branding. We do not want generic products, and we will pay a lot more for branded products that pretend to understand our needs and wants, solve them quicker, better, and with more care. What's more is that, for those that are susceptible, the effect of a placebo isn't illusionary. The mere belief that a pain reliever has been received is sufficient to induce the production of endorphins that, in turn, reduce the actual sensation of pain. Robert Trivers wrote in his book Deceit and Self-Deception, What the brain expects to happen in the near future affects its physiological state. It anticipates, and you can gain the benefit of that anticipation. The medical treatment people receive can be likened to conditioning trials. The doctor's white coat, the voice of the caring person, the smell of the hospital or the practice, the swallowing of the pill have all acquired specific meaning through previous experience, leading to an expectation of pain relief. So could the designer's style, the jargon of the confident project manager, the studio's art-infused environment, and the swallowing of the bill all lead a client towards the expectation of a successful design. Of course, design is not just about pleasing the client, or at least it shouldn't be. Design needs to prove itself in the laboratory of the marketplace, and only then will its efficacy be established. In the long run, if a placebo design does exist, it should be unmasked quite quickly and cruelly by the consumer and the choices they make. How many examples can you think of where a design or a brand has passed with flying colours in focus groups and marketing studies, only to disappear without a trace upon launch. Right, now where's my bottle of Dessini water gone? Thanks for listening. As always, you can find all of the references from this episode in the show notes. And if design and psychology is your sort of thing, you can join others on designerpsychology.com reading about topics such as Should a designer have morals? And you build behavioural thinking into your design. And you can also catch up with some deeper reading by picking up books from the Designer Psychology Library. If you're interested in writing an article yourself or reviewing a book, 
or telling everyone about a project that connects design and psychology, we're always on the lookout for contributors to join the Designer Psychology team. You can contact me on Twitter at Designer Psych or Facebook and Instagram at Designer Psychology. And you can also email me directly on hello at designerpsychology.com. Thanks again and see you next time.